listening to The New American Left with your host, Kieran Murphy. I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. This is a meme that may ring a bell. It pops up frequently enough on social media, but it's been very popular for a long time. It traces back to Sun Tzu in ancient China. It could go back even further than that. Who knows? Point is that it's been around for a long time. And a paraphrase of the story goes something like this. A student asks his teacher, Master, why is it you spend so much time teaching me the ways of war when I always find you here in your garden? And the master replies to the student, Because I would rather be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. This maxim fuels virtually everything we do here. And most importantly, what the last year has taught us is to ask, what does a revolution look like? I think when we use that word, it conjures up a series of different images for different people. So when I ask what a revolution looks like, it may look very different to a lot of people. And inside your own head, it may look different to you. But to me, a revolution is not the fantasy sort of that is pitched. We talk about our own American revolution and we talk about this fantasy that sort of makes it feel like it was a singular event that took place and then the light turned on and we were America. There was a choice that was made, you know? History shows you that it's actually a, a much more gradual, conditional change that takes place over time. So what I want people to start thinking about is, what is revolution to you? To me, a revolution is a series of acts of rebellion. Now, there's a wide scale and a wide range of what rebellion means. We're not talking about the fantastical Hollywood rebellion. We're talking about individual acts that you can do to change everything about our status quo. And that's what revolution really means, is a change. So we must ask ourselves, what are the small acts of rebellion that we can engage in to change the status quo that we are unhappy with? The way things have been going are untenable, and I would hope people can at least agree on that. So what are these small things that we can do at home that start this process, that turn into big things, that become true revolution? I would say a great quote for this comes from Friedrich Engels at the funeral for Karl Marx he said that the simple fact hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology is that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter, and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion. Today, we want to focus on the first one of those, eating, food. How do we feed ourselves? It's one of the great unifying factors of humanity. 
we all have to eat. So these days, in, in America mostly, we receive our food from processed food, which we get at our grocery store. Now, of course, there's fresh food and vegetables and fresh meat and whatnot at the grocery store. And that could be a whole podcast in and of itself as to um, the quality of that meat or vegetables. But that processed food that we all consume is not what we're all meant to eat. So today, we want to talk about how do we begin to disentangle ourselves from the web of commodity that we all live in. A lot of this is not your fault, or our fault, or anyone's. It's learned behavior. So we have to rethink it, primarily because it's unhealthy, and also because it is part of the web of commodification that keeps us in debt peonage, essentially. We are dependent on the system to feed us. And that is the first place that many of us could start, if not all of us, is making choices about the food that we eat and maybe learning to grow it ourselves. And that's the question we're going to answer today with the help of Sarah Saylor. I'm Sarah Saylor and I run Plenty Farms in downtown Loveland. Our website is plentyfarms.org and we have a local working farm share in our downtown district. We run six community uh, garden plots that are right in our old town neighborhood. We also bake wood-fired sourdough from our wood-fired oven and we hold classes and workshops for schools and communities. moved to Colorado about almost 16 years ago now and my husband and I have four daughters. I wasn't raised having any knowledge about homesteading skills. I, I wasn't really necessarily taught to be thrifty and all that. This idea of preserving resources. Uh, what happened is my kid got sick. So my oldest daughter when she was only eight years old was um, came down with a MRSA infection which is a resistant strain of staph and you know I kind of at that point had just been taking my kiddos to the doctor listening to what the doctor told me kind of doing the standard antibiotics with any um, infection kind of a thing and so when this hit I was pretty shocked and started to really research we had a pretty typical American diet I would say at the time my mom's Italian I'm half Italian so we ate a lot of veggies and all of that but certainly a lot of processed food kind of mixed in. But this experience of her getting this infection led us down a road of learning to heal our bodies naturally. Western medicine kind of failed in that experience that we went through. And we ended up learning a lot about how diet can affect your health. So we were pretty strapped. Having six people on one income was challenging. And when I realized that we needed to replace most carbs, eliminate sugar, but replace most carbs with vegetables, organic vegetables, I was faced with the reality that, okay, but we can't afford to become Whole Foods shoppers. <laughs> what would happen if I decided to dig up the front lawn and try and grow vegetables? So that was 
what was the very beginning for us. And so that's where it started. We did. We, we dug up the front lawn. That's, that's fascinating. I, I would imagine that that actually is a shared view for a lot of people, especially in our listening audience. I know in a, in a similar way, I grew up um, in Long Island, and we always used to joke how we were right on this cusp between utter suburbia and farm. And if you went down my parents' road to the main road of town and you took a right, you invariably went into suburban hell. You know, like just uh, fast food, every, everything you could imagine. And if you took a left and drove no more than five to ten minutes, you were uh, out in pumpkins, strawberry farms, peach orchards. So we had this bizarre dichotomy growing up where my parents were decidedly successfully middle class, so, you know, a teacher and a county worker. And um, so we, we weren't super thrifty. We weren't super wealthy, but we, we didn't pay attention enough to money. Mm-hmm. And our diets were not great. And uh, my dad went through a bout of uh, diverticulitis at mm-hmm. one point, mm-hmm. which was really scary. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that sort of shook us up. And he got into a much healthier lifestyle at that point, And that brought some of that in. And my mom's always been very much into cooking. Uh, so the more I got into that, the more we started eating, eating at home as well. So I think um, the sad reality is that a lot of people in the country suffer that. It's, you know, we, we, we grow up okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. And then something awful happens. Mm-hmm. And then that radically shifts your views. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that's essentially what happened with your MRSA diagnosis. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Well, my daughter, I was just desperate to find um, an alternative to these high-strength antibiotics that were destroying her gut and making her sicker. And we realized when we went through what we did with our daughter that my husband was dealing with a whole bunch of gut issues, things that we that were presenting differently, skin issues and things that um, really were linked to the gut. I mean, they say that 80 to 90% of our immune system is all about what's going on in the gut. So. Um, paying attention to that is is important, but really that was just, I, I always like to say that I accidentally fell in love with urban farming and really, I mean, I didn't start even as you are being more, you know, intentional with, with specific action plans that you want to take, <laughs> which is fabulous. I, that just wasn't what happened with us. It was really accidental, but then what happened was it made perfect sense. I got in touch with um, my Italian roots and, you know, I have photos of my, my great grandma standing proudly in front of her green bean patch and awesome. all of my, I mean, my mo- mom is an incredible cook and I've always, we've always eaten really well. But getting to go one step beyond that and growing the food, you know, ordering my Italian heirloom seeds that I want to grow. I actually have a um, a seed that we order that is um, part of my family namesake. So my mom's maiden name is Guguzza. And a Guguzza squash is um, a type of squash that grows in southern Italy, but it's my mom's maiden name. So that's special. I get to do that. But that, that experience yeah. for me of learning how to grow food to to you know sustain us also had this incredible depth on the other hand um for me personally where just getting in touch with what my ancestors did and and truly all of our ancestors really not very long ago knew how to feed themselves they knew how to um butcher an animal they knew how to save their seed for next year's harvest or next year's crop and these are skills that I feel are, well, it's just so important to, to revive them and pass them on and begin sharing them again. So absolutely, I'm passionate about doing. 
I love the concept that you're touching on there, and it, it works in so many aspects of life, and specifically as we talk about farming today. But that idea of looking back to our ancestors, looking back to the past a little bit, just the the ability to not have the arrogance that we've already solved all the problems. Mm-hmm. And to look back and go, you know what, actually maybe they were doing things differently and it worked better for them. And sadly what I find as a historian is I lend a little more credence to those solutions than the ones we come up in, with in modern times because their trial and error was life and death mm-hmm. and they had to trial and error it over generations. Absolutely. So they have a little bit more background and experience than I would say some of our sort of, you know, live in the moment, you know, convenience based yeah, solutions so that much. we've we've moved to. And that, I mean, is extraordinarily evident in food. It also goes every it, it looks everywhere. In in Irish music specifically, we had a similar period like this in the in the early twentieth century where um, because of English policies, and we can fight about that on a different episode, but that because of this and the outlawing of the music and the language and the and the robbing of the ancient culture, mm-hmm. what it forced people to do was look back and go get it. And so there was a very famous uh, person, Alan Lomax, some famous uh, American who had actually traveled Ireland recording these old songs mm-hmm. and making sure that he got them in the original Gaelic and he got them from the original song, uh, the singers who were all dying off at that period. And he really preserved this large archive of of material that you know 40 years later the clancy brothers are coming over to america and and you know starring on ed sullivan blowing up this folk revolution and it it takes looking back and preserving and going and going out and taking some active effort in doing so mm-hmm. and uh i think we're on a, a few of those trends <laughs> going forward yeah. it starts in farming now well, yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't say that in the beginning I would have even called it farming. I was really just looking at, I want to make a significant dent in my food budget. Um, I don't want to just, I mean, I, I had grown tomatoes in my backyard. I'd had a few, you know, a small garden patch that was more of a hobby garden. Sure. Um, yeah. Never with a ton of success, but at least, you know, I'd get some tomatoes and we'd eat some of the, the produce that we had grown. But I was looking that year, this was, uh, 2011 was the first year, I was looking to have a, a real impact on our food budget. So that's why we really did look and say, how much of a sunny area do we have in our yard? We live on a little corner lot, it's just a fifth of an acre. Um, we live in a, in a little 1920s um, older home. And so, yeah, we we went for it. I mean, we did, we did a very large section of the majority of that front side yard of, of our home. What was interesting about that too is that um, it wasn't necessarily, we, we chose that spot because of the sun, that, that was where it was most ideal to grow. But because it was in the front yard, I think a lot of times people don't consider growing in their front yard, they don't think about it. Um, thankfully we don't have any HOAs, we live in an old neighborhood, but that decision even I can tell you made such a difference with what ended up evolving with this food journey because people stop. You have conversations over the fence. People are people take notice. You get um, you make connections. Um, Will, who is a very important person in my life, taught mm-hmm. me how to bake yes. my sourdough bread. Um, Will rode his bike by when we were when we had just put up a few smaller boxes before we decided to dig up the whole yard, and he gave me his entire compost pile from his backyard because he saw that I didn't have, we, we were broke and we thought we'd have to buy bags of soil to fill up these big boxes we had built. And so he noticed they were empty for a few weeks as he rode his bike by and finally stopped and said, Hey, I have some soil in my backyard if you'd like it. And come to find out, um, 
he became a dear friend, ended up passing away of cancer. I found a photo in his stuff that, um, that was taken of him. And that's when I realized he gave me his entire compost pile. That was, <laughs> that was what he, that was his gift to me. And that was really what kind of one of the beginning starting points was, Beautiful. was a neighbor's generosity, someone who, Absolutely. and, and that human connection piece mm-hmm. to me, um, is really huge. And I think you can't do this alone. None of our, and if we're going to go back to our ancestors, our ancestors did not think they could do it alone. We live in this culture where we're so individualistic yes. and we think that we think we're separate. We're not, we're very connected, but, um, we live in a way where we, we think, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, I felt that way when I started, I'm going to do this. I'm so determined. <laughs> I'm going to grow food. I'm going to, you know, I bought a book, the Self-Sufficient Gardener by John Seymour, and I read it cover to cover. I thought, I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to do this. And and that part was important, the determination Absolutely. and, and the, the grit involved. But, but really, that was just the starting point. And then, you know, I just, it was trial and error. We made a ton of mistakes. That was the best yes. thing we could have done that first year. I want to touch on something you said that was really um, genius. I mean, the same way I noticed your farm was that. We, we drove by and we're like, that's a farm in someone's front yard. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. A few of the things I loved about it immediately. The rethinking of space. Because everybody, I can hear all of us coming from cities, how in the hell am I going to pull that off with my limited space? Mm-hmm. And you showed me immediately, I was like, wait a minute. We have to re-envision space. We have, mm-hmm. to, we have to think of it fundamentally differently mm-hmm. as space to grow food. And I always like to loop things back into historical context, right? And that love of the lawn is interesting. Like, um, because it, uh, this actually ties into Irish history. The gentry in the United uh, Kingdom, in Britain, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, including France too, one of the initial signs of being noble gentry was having a lawn. So you had this large space that you cleared of trees, you were able to keep grass there, and it showed your sort of ability to own. You know, this is the land I have. So this is the concept of the lawn. Now, fast forward to we come over to America, and settlers come over, many settlers coming to America, not exactly the most well-off, and even the ones who were. Everybody wanted a lawn. (laughs) So that was a fundamental founding principle of American individualism ownership is my lawn and even though you'll notice and any scientist will tell you and you as a gardener notice not exactly the best climate for lawns in north america you know not really but we forced it anyway because it meant something and especially you get the later waves of irish immigration in in the, the late 19th century and and that only increases again and it's what's interesting is you go through northeastern american cities that have a lot of immigrants from europe you have not only lawns, but even in the cities, you have these micro lawns. Like where even outside of the front of a townhouse or a brownstone, there'll be just a little patch of grass that is utterly meaningless if you think about it, except if you're, that's your lawn. Many of the immigrant families, um, and maybe they were trying to, maybe as they Americanized, they, they achieved the lawn but typically you would you know the immigrant families were the ones with the chickens in the backyard and with the vegetables growing in the front Mm -hmm. and anywhere that there was sunny space you know for growing food and you know my my italian relatives come from the san jose area that's where i was born and come from and 
And yeah, you know, right there and right close to downtown San Jose, my grandma, that's where she was growing her green beans. And, you know, my grandparents always had um, lots of vegetables growing in there and their suburban lots or or even urban lots. The the West has seemed to really keep that gardening tradition alive more so than Mm, than my the back east and from what I've seen. But yeah, but uh, up up uh, upstate New York does does it very well mm-hmm. um but yeah the, the west seems to they still have the, the communities they mm-hmm. still do it more more so i mean we still have to you know obviously well, better, speaking but, yeah. of you know growing food in spaces that we wouldn't necessarily think of i'm just always drawn back to the victory gardens i just feel so incredibly inspired to remember that 40 percent of america's produce was produced in home gardens during the war era and <sighs> that I mean, people were encouraged to keep chickens and rabbits for meat, which we also raise um, for that. I mean, these are all these are all things that are not very far away. These are our grandparents. You know, they they knew this. They were a part of that time. And if you can imagine um, what would happen if people began to become a little more acquainted with their own food, Again, I mean, that to me, really, that's one of the biggest tragedies is the losing connection yes. to food that if you ask, you know, the average child, especially in a city, if you ask them, you know, a schoolroom full of kids, they they may not be able to identify what a potato looks like. I mean, they're familiar with a French fry, but they may not know how to where does a potato grow above ground, underground? Yes. Those simple things are so removed Tremendous. from yeah. their daily reality. And so just getting i think you know when you when you were saying you have possibly listeners who are you know living in urban settings or or wondering how could i possibly do that my goal is never to say and now i want everyone listening to go rip up your front lawns (laughs) that's not at all my goal my goal is to help people take one step closer to becoming connected to what they eat so that might be actually um that might be shopping at a farmer's market, learning how to um, go and recognize who's growing stuff locally in your area and and support that local farm and then start eating more whole foods. I mean, we really have to go, go back to maybe there. And then maybe you start to realize, man, I could eliminate a lot of my trash if I started to compost my kitchen scraps. And then maybe you learn about worm bins. I could have a worm bin in my apartment and I could I could actually turn all of my food scraps into this incredible resource that could help me grow food. And maybe it's in a few pots. Maybe I'm growing some vegetables in some pots on a sunny patio. Or So truly, all I'm trying to do is get people inspired or maybe they just wanna learn how to bake bread. It's taking you know one step into getting more connected to your food and that will take you places. The type of revolution that we all need in our society, in our country, is not something that's a light switch. It's not something you can just do. Like, you just start asking a few questions. Like, okay, I'm going to start eating healthy. I used to, when I was younger, you know, if I was making tacos, I would get taco seasoning. You know? Like, go get it. And then one day I remember being like, well, maybe I could save a little bit if I just get like, the herbs. And I looked at what the ingredients in the taco seasoning was. And it was essentially garlic, black pepper, salt, paprika, chili powder, and then a lot of stuff I've never heard of. And I remember being like, this is how sick we are, everyone. I remember standing in the store being like, well, I wonder if you need that. Being like, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, well, maybe if I just try onion, garlic, black pepper, and chili powder, maybe it'll taste good. And once I got past that very small hurdle, 
I then started being like, well, I'm only going to buy raw foods that I can cook into something because I can cook. And then when then I started to make an, uh, an observation that I go into a supermarket that is the size of two football fields and I go on two aisles, maybe three. You know, I go to vegetables, I go to meat, dairy if necessary, uh, and then like household items, bolts, you know, stuff like that. I don't go to eight out of 12 aisles full of stuff that blows, I mean, it's not food. And once you kind of put that together, then you move to the farmer's market. And then you realize how good that food tastes. And then you meet the local butcher. And then you realize that I don't even have to stop eating meat if I get legitimate food from a local butcher where it tastes better, everybody. This is not, this, you know, the big secret here is your life improves. You know, so, and it's that slow sort of escalation that I loved about what you said because it makes it so much more digestible. Pun intended, I guess. But it makes it so much more achievable for everybody, too. Yeah, you know? and that, that has to... You have to start with something practical and achievable. And, and I think also it's going to be tailored and it's going to be unique for each person. Um, you know, some people feel intimidated by, you know, feeding a family. Maybe they feel like their kids won't, you know, they won't eat vegetables. And a lot of that comes from just exposure. And a lot of that comes from modeling, from, parent, you know, a parent modeling. But, you know, there's a myriad of different circumstances for each person. And again, I just think, um, you know, I, in my story I share in my book, there's short chapters and, and they're on different topics. And some of them, someone might be interested in learning about, you know, making your own fermented foods like sauerkraut yes. or, um, like I said, learning how to bake bread, making your own yogurt at home. I didn't know you could make yogurt at yep. home. I, I had no idea that that was a simple process. And yep. um, But it, it again, it's not surprising, like I've said, being Italian, that, that I get, you know, so excited when it comes to food and helping people um, get connected to that. It's um, – and another – talking about simple steps, and they sound small, but they can inspire you, and that's enough for me. Even if you have Netflix, go over right now. There's a show yeah. called Cooked. Yes. It's a, it's a small miniseries from Michael Pollan who – I had seen his face when I saw the show because I'm a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. I have been for years. you know. So I've always been in that vein of – I go cooking shows with my mom. I go back to Julia. And so, yeah. you know, uh, so I love that stuff. But whew, like Bourdain started to take it in a different direction with that, the connectivity of food, the cultural connectivity, the, the, the ancient past. And then this show cooked on Netflix. I mean, if you need if you if you're listening to us right now and going, this sounds great. I have no idea what they're talking about, more or less. <laughs> that's a great way to just kind of get started with everything, because yeah. I think it's a four part miniseries, maybe five. Yeah, it's and it's yeah, it's based fire, on the elementals. That's right. Yeah, elements. fire, air, water, and earth. Yes. And it's brilliant, beautifully yes. shot. It's like the planet Earth of food. Like go, uh, it's just really, really well done. And uh, then go watch like Dirty Money and Big Pharma stuff if you want to get angry. Inc. Yeah, like watch Food, <laughs> food Inc. Inc. is excellent as yeah. well. But these it's little things can get you started. Yeah, yeah little absolutely. little inspirational movies or stories that mm -hmm. I hate our media-driven culture. But I'm not afraid of using it. <laughs> so there can be great tools in there as well. So that, that could be a good way to start it yeah. as well for you. And I mean, once you do start making that connection, at the cook side of me is always just fascinating because it tastes better. You know, oh, it, yeah. it really, oh, yeah. food, and we see it here. We, you know, I cook for our friends and we have, you know, real home cooked meals over here. And there's a different vibe in a, in a situation like that than at a restaurant. Like mm -hmm. you just, it's better. Right? The food's better. The people are better. The times are better. And a lot of that's not quantifiable, but 
man, it's there, you know? Yeah, it's an elemental part of life that Absolutely. we're meant to, to partake in, and we miss out on so much when we when we just jump to fast food or eating out at a restaurant. Or Absolutely. You miss that connection yeah. piece. And if we force better food, then restaurants will improve too. <laughs> so we will have yeah. – then, then you start to go to the restaurant for the experience of the chef rather than just – Filling your own void of you know yeah. food need, you know yeah. it becomes a whole other thing. Yeah. So, where do you see Plenty Farms going in the next year to a few years? What's what's your what's your larger plans for the future? Well, I'll explain first what we do. Um, it's really it began um, my husband and I and my my girls. We that first year had an amazing year. Of course, there were things that didn't do as well, but on the whole, because we planted so much, we had a great harvest and we were totally hooked and very um, excited about this this growing your food thing. I mean, this kitchen garden that we were that we did. It is addictive. Um, it was a uh, it was it was very rewarding, and it wasn't. I was surprised by the fact that I w I was just looking for the outcome of food. Mm. I was looking for I want to grow food and I want it to to be enough for us. <laughs> But what I didn't realize is that it was going to really change my life in the sense that, you know, in the evenings, you know, my husband and I would have a glass of wine and we'd walk the garden and we'd look for, you know, oh, what is this bug that's eating my cabbage? Or, you know, I'd walk through and go, look how beautiful my, my baby collard greens are. Or look at the Swiss chard. And the experience of slowing down, of being aware of and in tune and connected to nature, so enriching. The, the process of, for my daughters to watch these seeds that we started and cared for turn into something huge and beautiful. I mean, these towering vines and baskets full of beans. I mean, it was an experience far beyond what I thought it would be. So there was that. And then, like I said, the community connection of neighbors um, asking questions and, and being interested. The next year, one of uh, our neighbors, um, she came to me and said, we have some health issues in our family and I'd really want to get a garden going and what you've done, this is what I'd like to do, can you help me? And when I saw her space, I said, well, if you're willing to grow in your front yard, that's, that's the space for you. And she said, let's do it. So we've kind of partnered up and our two families, along with my friend Will, um, we also asked a few other um, women, uh, single gals, that had some sunny space, and we asked, "Would do you mind if we used your backyard as well, and we'll share the food with you?" Um, so we started growing kind of in community together, with the hope that we could start to feed our families. A CSA is a term that stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and the model of a CSA farm is where local people invest in the farm at the front end of the season so they will they will pay for a share in that farm so let's say I don't know for a large farm that's producing a lot of vegetables they might pay six to eight hundred dollars but it's up front for the entire growing season and then they get these boxes of whatever the farm is producing each week so they get if you add it up it's actually quite a savings when you think wow. about how much produce goes for and then what they're doing is they're assuming the risk along with the farmer Typically, you come home with this box full of amazing fresh produce that you can use each week. That model was what my friend said, gosh, Sarah, you have so much food here. You should do a little CSA. And we thought, well, I don't know. I was very nervous to, to do that. Like, ah, we're still figuring this out. I'm not sure. But what we ended up doing about the third year in was start a little working CSA where people paid a very modest amount. I think we, it was like 175 to 
300. There were different um, ranges if you wanted to be in for the full season with the salad greens or just the summer season. Mm. But then they, the idea was these working members would come for two hours a week and help. And, and the process was come and learn and um, help us maintain the gardens, help us with whatever it is. Maybe we were um, moving wood chips, compost, Maybe it's the harvest season when, you know, in the peak of the summer, we really can only just pick everything because it takes so much time sure. to bring it back and weigh it and distribute it. So um, that model um, grew. And so we ended up this last year maintaining seven plots and we had about 15 families that were involved that we were um, feeding. And it's, it was a, it's a really wonderful time. I mean, we have Beautiful. kids involved, yeah. they come and they help, they learn the, what's involved in growing. But for us, what's unique is that this isn't like a big farm field. This is, you know, backyards, front yards sure. in yeah. the neighborhood. And so my desire is that we would have a lot of turnover because my hope is people come for a season, they work with us, they get inspired and they say, I can do this. I've seen how she started, you know, we learned how, you know, Lynn and Sarah are, are getting all these seeds going in the greenhouse and we're learning what they do when there's pest problems and we're learning how to, and not that we have all the answers, but they're learning along with us as we troubleshoot. Right. Um, and so that's kind of what we're doing. Um, I feel my desire is to, you know, for a while I was thinking, I want to teach people how to do this and we'll re replicate it all over, you know. I really feel drawn to kind of, investing in the long term in my neighborhood so you know we're planting fruit trees we've got um, a little mini orchard that we've started across the street i mean these are things that i know we won't see a return from for several years right yeah. but but my desire is to keep learning how to grow well in my corner of of this neighborhood in my little area um and hopefully continue to share i would like to have more we, we bring schools um through for field trips so we've got a few in walking distance that come through a couple times in the season and that's a passion of mine um, i'm a mother of four daughters and i've seen just how beautiful it is when maybe we have friends come over and we say we're gonna go pick um pick some greens for our salad and it's like shocking you know like <laughs> what do you mean pick your I salad know, right? <laughs> but that excitement and so we bring you know we've got preschoolers that come through second graders are usually learning about how plants grow so that's a good time but my desire is that in the future um i could start hosting some garden to to uh table cooking classes for probably middle school maybe high school Very students cool. yeah. our backyard we've got our wood-fired oven that we built we're in the process of finishing um a wood-fired rocket stove griddle so we can cook like on a big flat surface and then we'd like to finish and make it more a lot more counter space so i could have maybe five to ten students at a time and we could say all right we're gonna go pick a few cabbages we need some hot chili peppers we're gonna go get some tomatoes we're gonna make this today teach that way hands-on stuff you know, you don't want to worry about the replication all over the world type, you know, because what you're doing uh, when paired with good platform, you know, like, like we can get this out to other people too, you know, we can get this message out mm -hmm. that alone, it'll pollinate. Yeah. And that's how real change happens. Right. Not one Sarah Saylor saves us all, no, even though she's on her way. Not. But in reality, it's, it's that, you know, we have a million Sarah Saylors who all of a sudden show up and decide that this is how it, how we and can do, do it. And do it uniquely then, in your wow, own space. Yeah. It does make me excited to share what we are what we have been able to do in so cool. in this yeah. area i mean 
Um, we have salad greens all year round because of the protected hoop houses that are unheated. We live in northern Colorado, so it's a short growing season. You really have like this three month window where it's just all the produce is pumping in. But but what that has taught me then is you learn how to preserve. So right. that's the next step. Again, exactly. our grandparents knew how to preserve the harvest. Um, so whether it's canning, I mean, we're lucky to have, I we take advantage of the freezer. We do a lot of freezing, sure. yeah. uh, but mm-hmm. you can dehydrate, you can ferment, and, and then all of a sudden you can, that, that would be my goal personally. We, we sort of got, we started with, let's try to feed ourselves. We did make a huge dent in our food budget. We don't have to pay for produce all summer and fall. Fantastic. Um, yeah. But someday, our Lynn and I, our two families, we would like to be able to totally feed ourselves, um, including, you know, having enough storage potatoes and carrots and, um, you know, freezing or canning enough of our produce so that we don't have to really buy hardly any of the yeah. produce stuff throughout the whole year. So, but because we started to kind of share and do the CSA, which we love, That's awesome. we, yeah. we obviously don't have as much for our two families. So we're working on sort of each year we're adjusting how many members do we want to bring on this season? Can we expand a little more um, so that we have a, a few more rows that are just for our family's consumption? So we're learning. That's what that's, we're... Hey, that's in our own way. We've started with our friends who live over on the other side of town. They keep chickens in the backyard, and he all, and they also buy unroasted coffee beans fresh like from I the farmers it. in yeah. in, uh, okay. in Colombia. Uh-huh. So they roast us coffee beans and give us farm fresh eggs, and we bake bread and eggs. send them herbs and vegetables back. That's <laughs> so perfect. And it's a, it's just a simple house to house exchange, but yeah. you know, like that's how those little connections start, and and that's so great. and you just got to make these little tiny adjustments that always end up adding. When when we moved here, we started. Um, just trying to reduce our waste. Like we didn't think that we could be zero waste, mm-hmm. like what we're trying mm-hmm. to get there. Sure. And it started simply with just the food you cook, use it, you know? Mm-hmm. So composting, you'd yeah. mentioned, you know, we were lucky enough to buy the composter from the previous tenants here. Right. Um, and so we use that a lot more and uh, it's going great. And so that reduces our, our kitchen waste like 98%. Oh, like yeah. it's crazy. Like mm-hmm. you don't even realize. And then, so that, that's one aspect of it. But then even for uh, the holidays or uh, when I was cooking a, for Thanksgiving, I did a big turkey. I didn't just make the turkey and then throw it out. I made sure to boil it down to, a, you know, a ton of turkey stock, mm-hmm. which then I froze in our deep freezer. And we kept that there. And that became the basis of sauce for every meal over the winter thus far and everything we've ever used. So just trying to squeeze every ounce out of everything you do have to buy mm-hmm. is a great tactic for people that they can start tomorrow. You Absolutely. know, like, like uh, little little things like that just to make yourself feel like you're you're really you're making an effort and it's small but it really isn't you know it really adds up it if adds we up. all did that yeah it does right. I'm, I'm this was something that i th- i think for me personally i had sort of had to be forced to learn i wouldn't have mm-hmm. probably gone there on my own and that was so helpful you know i mean and i i just ended up meeting people that taught me little things right. like you said that that helped i needed to save money cuz we were trying to make things stretch and but but beyond you know going man I saved some money on that beyond that sense of yeah. satisfaction, is the appreciation you gain for 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 everything. I mean to have True. to have herbs on your windowsill that you can go pick from to make your meal taste better, it it improves your quality of life. To have yeah. to know that you know to sit down at our table, especially in the summertime, spring, summer, fall, where we can say, all right, let's look at this, let's look at this table. You know whether it's 
maybe we're having rabbit from an animal that we raised. Maybe we're eating some lamb from one of our friends who raises them. But to be able to say, look at almost everything on our plate, we were a part of producing. Or if we didn't, what that's done for us is now even in the winter months when we are buying produce other places, we stop and go, man, let's think about who produced this. Or let's think about, you know, the avocado farmers that are, are growing, you know, what we're enjoying right now. But just it, it brings this piece of like True. mindfulness that I, you know, again, was completely not in my on my radar. Uh, but all of a sudden, it's so enriching to yeah. to realize that we like again, we think we're separate, but we are not separate. We are so connected yeah. to all of humanity, left, right, middle. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean that that is that's everything. I mean, honestly, it it is all connected. It, it there in there there is a gear shift that takes place mm -hmm. uh, when you start doing this, where you, you do start to see the food differently, mm -hmm. which is unexpected mm -hmm. and very rewarding. Mm -hmm. And 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 the way Sarah just described it is perfect. It's that notion of knowing where everything came from and it tastes better to you mm -hmm. because you put the work into it. Mm -hmm. It could be psychosomatic for all I know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. But it does feel that way because mm -hmm. you can see like I don't I don't look at a turkey carcass like, oh I gotta throw that out. Now it's like options. You know, <laughs> like yeah. all of a sudden you see see all these things that it can become and you just never it becomes this really engrossing game of not wasting things, like, which is really impressive. I got to tell you a funny story. Uh, yes. Again, um, this is a little short story clip in my book. But um, so when we first started learning how to butcher, we, we have backyard chickens. And so after a few years, two to three years, the hens slow way down in their egg production and really stop laying. So, um, yeah, you, the, you can either just let your hen live out its long life, uh, feed it for many more years, or you can decide we're going to actually harvest this animal and we're going to eat it and, you know, enjoy and be grateful. So we um, started learning how to butcher chickens. And I, I had read when we were learning about healing the gut, healing your, you know, uh, and that if you made bone broth and you included chicken feet, it would be, it, it like boost the nutritional value because of all of the, the gelatin that's okay. in the chicken yeah. feet. Well, that just sounded like, well, that's fine, but have you seen a chicken's foot? Like, have, you, have you ever raised chickens? Have you seen how nasty their toenails get? And like, they're, I mean, they're like little dinosaurs. I mean, they're, they, they're, they are. Legs, <laughs> yeah. are these scales. And then it's like got chicken poop and all sorts of crap underneath there. I'm thinking, all right, so we butcher. We, we had butchered chickens, but we, we used to just compost the feet. Like, I can't do it. I'm not there yet. But then eventually I thought, okay, we have five hens that we're going to call. I'm going to, I'm going to save the feet. So I get my little Gia. She's, you know, the older girls are helping pluck. Gia at the time, I think, was maybe, maybe six. And so she's scrubbing the chicken feet. Okay, baby girl, you got to get those chicken feet clean because somehow we're going to make those. And they're like, what are we going to do with these? So she's scrubbing the, sheet, the feet of these chickens. We bring them inside, and I'm still looking like... No way. I don't see. Uh, there's no way. This is still too filthy. So I call my good buddy, Will, and he starts laughing on the phone. He had a lot more homesteading skills. So he says, oh, you didn't You have to know one more step. You have to dunk them in boiling water for just maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And then the skin peels off like a glove. And I was kind of horrified by that. All right, so we're, we're doing this. We already were this far into it. We're doing this. We do the thing. We start to, and it's like, you know, my daughters at first are like, yuck, ew. And then, wait, let me try that. You know, because all of a sudden it's this satisfying feeling. 
they peel off they do the skin does peel off there's a whole other layer of skin and the toenails pop off as well <laughs> it's disgusting there's That's little awesome. new toenails underneath <laughs> so that experience you never know where something like this will take you we never thought we would be oh, putting yeah. chicken feet <laughs> I was gonna say it's not all it's not all uh, sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. I've discovered so many insects, and that I've never. I, I, we were Kelly and I were joking about that the other day, where we were saying that I think I understand how people used to coexist with insects. Now, at some point, you just go like, eh, whatever. <laughs> but, you, know, like, you just get used to it again. It's it it, yes. it is it is funny. <laughs> yeah. So there's some interesting experiences. Not to mention, you know, your your young daughters watching two rabbits mate because they're breeding them for <laughs> for you know the next year and you get lots of interesting questions well these are the uh, teachable moments it's as i true. think it is as they this is how you learn <laughs> oh well, that's that's fabulous <laughs> well so where can people go uh, where can they find out more about plenty farms that, yeah so yeah. i have two websites plenty farms is kind of our local is the local connection for people because it is uh, where we sell we we bake bread just once a month out of our wood fired oven it's sort of to support the garden project and then also for just our our local csa so plenty farms really um, is kind of what we're doing locally in in our Loveland area. But I have another blog that is where I started first sharing um, about our food journey, and that's um, called thriftygoodlife.com. And that is you can you can find my book on both on both sites. Um, it's available on Amazon. But the book that I wrote is really just a journey or that shares our our journey for how about how we um, fell in love with with growing food, how it um, touched on so many other points of connection, how we ended up um, farming the neighborhood, you know, cooking in our backyard wood oven, and um, and how it led to all these other enriching parts of our life. So that little, that um, book is available on both websites. Fantastic. I, and I, I highly encourage you to go and pick up the book. Uh, check out the website. If you're in our local area out here, which I know some of you are, uh, come on down and buy some of that bread because yeah, it is fabulous. We, uh, that's right. The second Friday of every month, we set up at Loveland Aleworks on 4th Street. So um, you can pre-order bread on our website anytime up until the second Friday, which is Loveland's Night on Excellent. the Town. <laughs> so cool. And I read the book, get into the website. Under, I mean, I'm sure we'll have Sarah back as well. I mean, we're, we live very close. <laughs> so uh, this all was very serendipitous. But she makes the impossible seem rather possible. So that is a, a talent that can't be uh, <laughs> enjoyed enough. So if you need inspiration and you don't know where to start, Sarah is step zero for you. So get onto those websites. Get her book. Check it out. Let us know what you think. And uh, tell us your stories, too. Tell us your successes you know, from out there. That's what I want to hear about as well. Because we all will learn from each other from this point. And that's... But don't be afraid to make mistakes and start small. Do something yes. small, whether it's you know, picking up a little book to get you inspired or talking to a neighbor that you know grows food. Um, yep. yeah. Or herbs. You know, herbs yeah. are great if you like to cook, especially. Mm -hmm. If you like to cook and you're afraid of the, big, the bigness, mm -hmm. uh, start with herbs. Because yes. they, it's an immediate gratification feeling where you can taste them right away and it teaches you a little something. So yeah, it's a good, great place to start. Well, thanks so much for coming, Sarah. We yeah. really appreciate this. This Thank is uh, absolutely knocked it out of the park, and, and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you. All right? It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. So what does a revolution look like to you? Again, it can look like many things to many people. 
the classic Hollywood sense, which we talked about, the fantastical revolution, that could happen, and we must be prepared for all ends. But real revolution and real change involves disentanglement from the web of commodity. And if we can do that, that is a form of rebellion. And if we all do that together, in each town, each city, we'll break the system. And that is what a revolution is. So, we must all make ourselves warriors in the garden, so we don't end up gardeners in a war. We can fight the revolution, we can spark the revolution, but immediately we can start to grow a revolution. Don't get captured. This is Sarah Saylor, and you've been listening to The New American Left. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and visit us at thenewamericanleft.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the new A-M-E-R left.